Section 30 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. 13, Part 3, Bay Bazaar, Angora, and Eastward. Near ten o'clock on Tuesday morning finds Angora the scene of more excitement than it has seen for some time. I am trundling through the narrow streets toward the appointed starting place, which is at the commencement of a half-mile stretch of excellent level macadam, just beyond the tombstone-planted suburbs of the city. Mr. Binns is with me, and a squad of Zaptias are engaged in the lively occupation of protecting us from the crush of people following us out. They are armed, especially for the occasion, with long switches, with which they unsparingly lay about them seemingly only too delighted at the chance of making the dust fly from the shoulders of such unfortunate whites as the pressure of the throng forces anywhere near the magic cause of the commotion the time and place of starting have been proclaimed by the valley and have become generally noised abroad and near three thousand people are already assembled when we arrive among them is seen the genial face of suleiman effendi who, in his capacity of mayor, is early on the ground with a force of Zaptias to maintain order, and, with a little knot of friends, behold, is also our humble friend, the Armenian pastor, the irresistible attractions of the wicked bicycle having temporarily overcome his contempt of the pomps and vanities of secular displays. "'Englishmen are always punctual,' says Suleiman Effendi, looking at his watch, and upon consulting our own sure enough we have happened to arrive precisely to the minute an individual named mustafa a blacksmith who has acquired an enviable reputation for skill on account of the beautiful horseshoes he turns out now presents himself and begs leave to examine the mechanism of the bicycle and the question arises among the officers standing by as to whether mustafa would be able to make one Mustafa himself thinks he could, providing he had mine always at hand to copy from. Yes, suggests the practical-minded Suleiman Effendi. Yes, Mustafa, you may have marifet enough to make one, but when you have finished it, who among all of us will have marifet enough to ride it? True, Effendi, solemnly assents another. We would have to send for an Englishman to ride it for us, after Mustafa had turned it out. The mayor now requests me to ride along the road once or twice to appease the clamor of the multitude until the valley arrives. The crowd along the road is tremendous, and on a neighboring knoll, commanding a view of the proceedings, are several carriage-loads of ladies, the wives and female relatives of the officials. The mayor is indulgent to his people, allowing them to throng the roadway, simply ordering the Zaptias to keep my road through the surging mass open while on the home stretch from the second spin up dashes the valley in the state equipage with quite an imposing bodyguard of mounted zaptias their chief being a fine military-looking circassian in the picturesque military costume of the caucasus these horsemen the governor at once orders to clear the people entirely off the roadway an order no sooner given than executed 
and after the customary interchange of salutations, I mount and wheel briskly up the broad, smooth macadam between two compact masses of delighted natives. Excitement runs high, and the people clap their hands and howl approvingly at the performance, while the horsemen gallop briskly to and fro to keep them from intruding on the road after I have wheeled past and obstructing the governor's view. After riding back and forth a couple of times, I dismount at the valley's carriage, a mutual interchange of adieus and well-wishes all around, and I take my departure, wheeling along at a ten-mile pace amid the vociferous plaudits of at least four thousand people, who watch my retreating figure until I disappear over the brow of a hill. At the upper end of the main crowd are stationed the irregular cavalry on horses, mules, and donkeys and among the latter i notice our ingenious friend the armless youth of yesterday whom i now make happy by a nod of recognition having scraped up a backsheesh acquaintance with him yesterday for some miles the way continues fairly smooth and hard leading through a region of low vineyard-covered hills but ere long i arrive at the newly made road mentioned by the valley after which like the course of true love, my forward career seldom runs smooth for any length of time, though rideable donkey trails occasionally run parallel with the bogus chemin de fer. For mile after mile I now alternately ride and trundle along donkey paths, by the side of an artificial highway that would be an enterprise worthy of a European state. The surface of the road is either graveled or of broken rock, and, well-rounded for self-drained age, it is graded over the mountains and wooden bridges with substantial rock supports, are built across the streams. Nothing is lacking except the vehicles to utilize it. In the absence of these, it would almost seem to have been an unnecessary and superfluous expenditure of the people's labor to make such a road through a country, most of which is fit for little else but grazing goats and buffaloes. Aside from half-dozen carriages at Angora, and a few light government postaya arabas, an innovation from horses for carrying the mail, recently introduced as a result of the improved roads, and which make weekly trips between such points as Angora, Yuzgat, and Tokat, the only vehicles in the country are the buffalo carts of the larger farmers, rude homemade arabas with solid wooden wheels, whose infernal creaking can be heard for a mile and which they seldom take any distance from home, preferring their pack-donkeys and cross-country trails when going to town with produce. Perhaps in time vehicular traffic may appear as a result of suitable roads, but the natives are slow to adopt new improvements. About two hours from Angora I pass through a swampy upland basin, containing several small lakes, and then emerge into a much less mountainous country, passing several mud villages, the inhabitants of which are dark-skinned people, Turkoman refugees, I think, who look several degrees less particular about their personal cleanliness than the villagers west of Angora. Their wretched mud hovels would seem to indicate the last degree of poverty, but numerous flocks of goats and herds of buffalo grazing near apparently tell a somewhat different story. The women and children seem most engaged in manufacturing cakes of tezek, large flat cakes of buffalo manure mixed with chopped straw which are daubed on the outer walls to dry. It makes very good fuel, like the buffalo chips of the far west, and stacking it up on the housetops with provident forethought for the approaching winter. 
just as darkness is beginning to settle down over the landscape, I arrive at one of these unpromising-looking clusters, which, it seems, are now peculiar to the country, and not characteristic of any particular race, for the one I arrive at is a purely Turkish village. After the usual preliminaries of pantomime and binning, I am conducted to a capacious flat roof, the common covering of several dwellings and stables bunched up together. This roof is as smooth and hard as a native threshing floor, and well knowing, from recent experiences, the modus operandi of capturing the hearts of these bland and childlike villagers, I mount and straightway secure their universal admiration and applause by riding a few times around the roof. I obtain a supper of fried eggs and yaort, milk soured with rennet, eating it on the housetop, surrounded by the whole population of the village, on this and adjoining roofs, who watch my every movement with the most intense curiosity. It is the raggedest audience I have yet been favored with. There are not over half a dozen decently clad people among them all, and two of these are horsemen, simply remaining overnight, like myself. Everybody has a fearfully flea-bitten appearance, which augurs ill for a refreshing night's repose. Here, likewise, I am first introduced to a peculiar kind of bread that I straightway condemn as the most execrable of the many varieties my ever-changing experiences bring me in contact with, and which I find myself mentally and half unconsciously naming blotting paper ekmek, a not inappropriate title to convey its appearance to the civilized mind. But the sheets of blotting paper must be of a wheaten color and in circular sheets about two feet in diameter. This peculiar kind of bread is, we may suppose, the natural result of a great scarcity of fuel, a handful of tezek, beneath the large, thin-sheet iron griddle, being sufficient to bake many cakes of this bread. At first I start eating it, something like a shanty-town goat would set about consuming a political poster. If it, not the political poster, but the shanty-town goat, had a pair of hands, this outlandish performance creates no small merriment among the watchful onlookers, who forthwith initiate me into the mode of eating it a la Turk, which is to roll it up like a scroll of paper and bite mouthfuls off the end. I afterwards find this particular variety of ekmek quite handy when seated around a communal bowl of yeort with a dozen natives. Instead of taking my turn with the one wooden spoon in common use, I would form pieces of the thin bread into small handleless scoops, and, dipping up the yeort, eat scoop and all. Besides sparing me from using the same greasy spoon in common with a dozen natives, none of them overly squeamish as regards personal cleanliness, this gave me the appreciable advantage of dipping into the dish as often as I choose, instead of waiting for my regular turn at the wooden spoon. Though they are Osmanli Turks, the women of these small villages appear to make little pretense of covering their faces. Among themselves they constitute, as it were, one large family gathering, and a stranger is but seldom seen. They are apparently simple-minded females, just a trifle shamefaced in their demeanor before a stranger, sitting apart by themselves while listening to the conversation between myself and the men. This, of course, is very edifying even apart from its pantomimic and monosyllabic character, for I am now among a queer people, a people through the unoccupied chambers of whose unsophisticated minds wander strange, fantastic thoughts. 
One of the transient horsemen, a contemplative young man, the promising appearance of whose upper lip proclaims him something over twenty, announces that he likewise is on the way to Yuzgat, and, after listening attentively to my explanations of how a wheelman climbs mountains and overcomes stretches of bad road, he solemnly inquires whether a cycler could scurry up a mountain slope all right if someone were to follow behind and touch him up occasionally with a whip in the persuasive manner required in driving a horse. He then produces a rawhide persuader and ventures the opinion that if he followed close behind me to Yuzgat and touched me up smartly with it whenever we came to a mountain or a sandy road, there would be no necessity of trundling any of the way. He then asks, with the innocent simplicity of a child, whether in case he made the experiment I would get angry and shoot him. The other transient appears of a more speculative turn of mind and draws largely upon his own pantomimic powers and my limited knowledge of Turkish to ascertain the difference between the hatch lira of a bicycle at retail and the hatch lira of its manufacture. From the amount of mental labor he voluntarily inflicts upon himself to acquire this particular item of information, I apprehend that nothing less than a wild visions of acquiring a rapid fortune by starting a bicycle factory at Angora are flitting through his imaginative mind. The villagers themselves seem to consider me chiefly from the standpoint of their own peculiar ideas concerning the nature of an Englishman's feelings toward a Russian. My performance on the roof has put them in the best of humor, and has evidently whetted their appetites for further amusement. Pointing to a stolid-looking individual of an apparently taciturn disposition, and who is one of the respectably dressed few, they accuse him of being a Yusiao and then all eyes are turned towards me, as though they quite expect to see me rise up wrathfully and make some warlike demonstration against him. My undemonstrative disposition forbids so theatrical a proceeding, however, and I confine myself to making a pretense of falling into the trap, casting furtive glances of suspicion towards the supposed hated subject of the Tsar and making whispered inquiries of my immediate neighbors concerning the nature of his mission in Turkish territory. During this interesting comedy, the audience are fairly shaking in their rags with suppressed merriment, and when the taciturn individual himself, who has thus far retained his habitual self-composure, growing restive under the hateful imputation of being a Moscow, and my supposed bellicose sentiments toward him, in consequence, finally repudiates the part thus summarily assigned him, the whole company bursts out into a boisterous roar of laughter. At this happy turn of sentiment, I assume an air of intense relief shake the taciturn man's hand, and, borrowing the speculative transient's fez, proclaim myself a Turk, an act that fairly brings down the house. Thus the evening passes merrily away until about ten o'clock, when the people begin to slowly disperse to the roofs of their respective habitations, the whole population sleeping on the housetops, with no roof over them save the star-spangled vault the arched dome of the great mosque of the universe, so often adorned with the pale yellow, crescent-shaped emblem of their religion. Several families occupy the roof which has been the theater of the evening social gathering, and the men now consign me to a comfortable couch made up of several quilts, one of the transients thoughtfully cautioning me to put my moccasins under my pillow, as these articles were the object of almost universal covetousness during the evening.
No sooner am I comfortably settled down than a wordy warfare breaks out in my immediate vicinity, and an ancient female makes a determined dash at my coverlet with the object of taking forcible possession, but she is seized and unceremoniously hustled away by the men who assigned me my quarters. It appears that, with an eye singly and disinterestedly to my own comfort, and regardless of anybody else's, they have, without taking the trouble to obtain her consent, appropriated to my use the old lady's bed, leaving her to shift for herself any way she can, a high-handed proceeding that naturally enough arouses her virtuous indignation to the pitch of resentment. Upon this fact occurring to me, I, of course, immediately vacate the property in dispute, and, with true western gallantry, arraign myself on the rightful owner's side by carrying my wheel and other effects to another position, whereupon a satisfactory compromise is soon arranged between the disputants, by which another bed is prepared for me, and the ancient dame takes triumphant possession of her own. Peace and tranquillity being thus established on a firm basis, the several families tenanting our roof settle themselves snugly down. The night is still and calm, and naught is heard save my nearer neighbors scratching, scratching, scratching. This, not the scratching, but the quietness, doesn't last long, however, for it's customary to collect all the four-footed possessions of the village together every night and permit them to occupy the interspaces between the houses, while the humans are occupying the roofs, the horde of watchdogs being depended upon to keep watch and ward over everything. The hovels are more underground than above the surface, and often, when the village occupies sloping ground, the upper edge of the roof is practically but a continuation of the solid ground, or, at the most, there is but a single step up between them. The goats are, of course, permitted to wander whithersoever they will, and equally, of course, they abuse their privilege by preferring the roofs to the ground and wandering incessantly about among the sleepers. Where the roof comes too near the ground, some temporary obstruction is erected to guard against the intrusion of venturesome buffaloes. No sooner have the humans quieted down than several goats promptly invade the roof and commence their usual nocturnal promenade among the prostrate forms of their owners, and further indulge their well-known goatish propensities by nibbling away the edges of the roof. They would, of course, prefer a square meal off a patchwork quilt, but from their earliest infancy they are taught that meddling with the bedclothes will bring severe punishment. A buffalo occasionally gives utterance to a solemn prolonged moo. Now and then a baby wails its infantile disapproval of the fleas, and frequent noisy squabbles occur among the dogs. Under these conditions, it is not surprising that one should woo in vain the drowsy goddess, and near midnight some person within a few yards of my couch begins groaning fearfully, as if in great pain, probably a case of the stomach ache. I mentally conclude, though this hasty conclusion may not unnaturally result from an inner consciousness of being better equipped for curing that particular affliction than any other. From the position of the sufferer, I am inclined to think it is the same ancient party that ousted me out of her possessions two hours ago, and I lay here as far removed from the realms of unconsciousness as the moment I retired, expecting every minute to see her appear before me in a penitential mood, asking me to cure her.
for the inevitable Hakim question had been raised during the evening. She doesn't present herself, however. Perhaps the self-accusations of her conscience for having in the moment of her wrath attempted to appropriate my coverlet in so rude a manner prevent her appealing to me now in the hour of distress. These people are early risers. The women are up milking the goats and buffaloes before daybreak, and the men hieing them away to the harvest fields and threshing floors. I, likewise, bestir myself at daylight, intending to reach the next village before breakfast. End of section 30 Recording by William Tomko